Father, thanks for bringing us here tonight. We are just grateful for uh, your goodness to us. We're grateful for the Word of God that guides and directs us and teaches us who you are and explains uh, the part of your ways that you want us to understand and the character that you want us to know about. So, Lord, we're thankful for that, that you saved us and then you opened our hearts to the truth and gave us a love for it. And we are just so grateful for the opportunity to glean principles out of it that will help us live lives to your glory. So help us with that in mind tonight. In Christ's name, amen. I know we all understand the concept of buoys in the water, those markers that are there in channels of water. Uh, They are many times just uh, marking a path that boats need to stay in. That was true of the Normandy invasion, you know, back in the 1940s. All those ships, that great armada of ships, had to stay within certain markers in order to be safe. They veered outside of that. Uh, There were mines that could blow up the ships and and so forth. And you can think of other applications of that where buoys are placed to uh, mark maybe some shallow place where the boats need to avoid so they don't run aground and so forth. I think that concept is a good concept to describe all these points that I'm giving you last week and this week about marriage, entitled Marriage in the Midst of the Storm. Uh, And uh, interestingly, on on D-Day, you know, there were great storms they had to deal with as well when they made their way across the English Channel to invade France. Uh, But tonight is part two of that, Marriage in the Midst of the Storm. It's the idea that sometimes uh, in life, these difficult seasons come, challenges come, and For married couples, it puts an additional pressure on the relationship, and so we want to make sure we're responding to the pressure that God brings, pressure that we experience is part of his sovereign plan, you know. Always keep in mind the difference between pressure and stress. I've said it before, pressure is from God. Stress is our unbiblical response to God's pressure. But I'm sharing some selected thoughts that I'm calling do's and don'ts especially for married couples who are riding out a storm perhaps right now or are facing a storm that you don't even know about yet in God's plan. These points are like those buoys in the water. They're, they're what you will go back to. Keep your eyes on, on these markers because they give you the course to stay on, so to speak, when the winds of stormy life situations are making things more difficult. As I explained last week, this is not a Bible exposition that I'm accustomed to doing. Some of the thoughts I'm sharing are learned from my own personal experience, my own, including my own personal failure. Some from books I've read through the years and talking and counseling others and so forth. But all that I'm saying I trust will be in harmony with what God's inerrant inspired word says. And I'll say what I get said last week again, that if you're single... Uh, I promise these principles apply to you. They're good for life. You can apply them to other situations besides marriage, or you may be facing marriage someday. So remember every single word I say last week and tonight, okay? Now, since this, it is part two, I'll only just tell you what the other two points were. Last week, there was a do and a don't. Number one, do keep expectations reasonable. So I can't reteach all of this, 
But in general, expectations can be deadly. It's another word sometimes for the biblical concept of lust or even an idol. We get our hearts set on something and life being a certain way and then it doesn't turn out that way and we're left frustrated and bitter and angry and all those kinds of things. So keep expectations reasonable, especially when life is difficult. And number two that we talked about was don't take struggles out on each other. Uh, that attack the problem, not the person, I said. And act, don't react, was another little mantra I shared with you. So again, I suggest that you watch the video recording on our website if you missed it or want to review that just so you have the whole picture. But here are the other 11, and I can't keep reviewing all of them. It will sound like the, you know, the 12 days of Christmas if I keep going back and saying each one again and again. So can't do that. But here are the remaining 11 do's and don'ts, the remaining 11 markers, buoys in the channel. channel. Number three, don't neglect time together. Don't neglect time together. And by time together, I mean to communicate. That time together for communicating is crucial. And that's true of all seasons of marriage. But it is through emotional, uh, through communication that emotional closeness is built and it's through that communication that emotional closeness is maintained and fostered. So again, that's true for all married couples all the time, but especially true in times of pressure and difficulty. And of course, when I say communication, I mean biblical communication. There is bad communication that can cause even more harm. But I'm talking about communication that Scripture supports, communication that's kind, communication that's patient and thoughtful and gracious and not harsh and caustic or attacking and critical. Now, there are so many verses in Scripture that remind us how God expects people, His people, to communicate, whether it's in the body of Christ generally or in a relationship. Here are just a few. I just pulled out maybe three of my favorites. Uh, Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word or harsh words stir up anger. Proverbs 15.1. Proverbs 16.21, the second half of it, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. What a great thought that is. I mean, if you really want to have an impact in your communication and resolve a problem and attack a problem, not the person, keep that one in mind. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And in the New Testament, I think Ephesians 4.29 is the classic verse there. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the needs of the moment. What that means is, what's needed at that time, so that it will give grace to those who hear. No unwholesome word. The word means rotting. It's the same word they would use for rotting fish or rotting eggs or a decaying body and so forth. Certain words that come out of our mouths can be rotting. Well, along with this encouragement to maintain good communication, especially during difficult times, let me just add this one thought. Don't let technology, steal time with one another. I mean, steal time from real communication. I mean, I confess to you, my my wife do text one another. 
Uh, sometimes we even text one another when we're in the house, you know. Uh, that's the world we live in. But it's never a substitute for the time that we, we do have to have together, spending time together. And, and some people are more technologically savvy and, and, and prone to buying the, the latest thing that's available than other people are. I get that. Some are constantly getting every new app that comes out. But just remember, some old-fashioned things are still the best, like talking, you know, face-to-face, like touching, like getting coffee together, and like taking walks together, or putting notes in the proverbial lunchbox. Those old-fashioned things are still the best. So before you buy more hardware, before you download another app, ask how any of that is really going to bring you together more with your spouse, or is it going to interfere? So don't think you have to have everything new that's new that comes out. You don't have to. Will it save you time, really? It doesn't for many people. And, and that's a common sight to see, you know, people uh, scrolling and instead of spending time talking. So here's some good practical advice. Click, exit, and go be together face-to-face. Something that can help you maintain these times of together and times of communication, especially when difficult times are happening, and that is scheduling it. I have counseled many, many people through the years. Scheduling is not only helpful, sometimes it's crucial. We have been in seasons like that where we actually get out the calendar. So Tuesday morning, communicate, 9 o'clock. How does that work for you? You know, Yeah, no, that's good. Can you make it 9.30? I think that's better. Okay, 9.30, communicate. What about Thursday night? Thursday night, 8 o'clock, let's communicate. Let's get coffee together. I mean, if you have to do that, do it. It's that important. It's that crucial. Scheduling even your most intimate times together can ensure that you maintain some sense of normalcy during the pressure, during the stormy times. Number four, do embrace changes in life. Do embrace changes in life. I mean, this is a key characteristic, 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 I don't think that's a word, characteristic of the world we live in. Change. I mean, we are required to go through shifts from one season of life to another and that happens for a variety of reasons. And your, 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 your marriages go through these seasons. In fact, depending on how long you've lived, you surely can recognize as you look back the various stages or seasons that you've come through already. The first years of marriage, you know, that, that's a season. The first child, other children coming along, children entering school, children entering their teens, children leaving home. Boomerang kids returning, the aging of your parents, loss of parents, your marriage during retirement years, loss of your spouse. And these can be in different orders for different people. It doesn't always happen in that order. And there are other life-changing events that can be mixed in, changes in your job situation, a loss of a child a move to another city, and so on. So it's helpful to to stay the course, especially 
during these changes to identify some goals that can stick with you, some goals and values that will survive the constant and rapid change and build them into yourself and your spouse and your family. And that may mean literally setting and reevaluating some yearly goals or some, some three to five year range goals or some seven to ten year range goals and so forth that you can keep your, your heart set on, your eyes on, that can keep you on that path. And I mean goals that are specific as you can make them, but yet as realistic as you can make them. Things that are achievable with the Lord's help. And if it's helpful, write them out. But at the same time, what do you have to be when it comes to goals? You have to be flexible. You must be willing and able to adapt to how life keeps turning out since change in some way or another is guaranteed. So inflexibility is deadly. And then when it comes to goals and plans and And again, the understanding that life's going to bring changes, but we're going to try to stay on a course as much as possible. It does help to remember this, that God is the divine editor. Remember that statement in James, we'll we'll make our plans. We say we'll go to such and such city. What does it say to qualify that? If the Lord wills. Paul says that a couple of times in 1 Corinthians. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to you. If God permits, if the Lord wills. He is the divine editor, and he has that right. He has the right, and he has the ability to edit any plans we make, any goals that we set, so that his purposes are accomplished. That's even a subtle implication, if you think about it, of Romans 8.28, that familiar verse to us, that that, uh, God is, is, is working and, and he's in and, and through all things. He's working it all together, even working in individual things by themselves, not even just together, in order to, to bring about his purposes, that he's bringing about good for those who are his called ones, his people. And then verse 29 tells us what the good is. He's making us more like Christ. That's what he's doing with the all things. So if you think about it, that's even a picture of divine editing. He even overturns evil and uses it for that purpose. He takes our bad plans and reroutes them somehow, even letting us experience failure sometimes. But then we make another plan and it channels us this direction. God's orchestrating all that. He's the divine administrator, the divine editor. So I'm just saying as you make your goals to deal with the changes of life, to keep you on course, keep in mind the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And there are lots of verses I could go to for the sovereignty of God, but once again, I get to pick my favorites. So it's Psalm 115, verse 3. I mentioned it many times. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Okay, that's God. In other words, ultimately, it's God who brings about even the changes of seasons of your life. He's orchestrating all of that. It's God who's shifting us from one season into another season. So since God is sovereign and since he is continually working out his own will, and since that includes him editing any plans and any goals we make, we certainly need to constantly pray for the Lord's help and his wisdom So as we make decisions in the constant flow of of the changes of life that we're living out the words of Psalm 90, verse 12. 
The psalmist prays there. It's Moses wrote Psalm 90. He says, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Regardless of what's going on in our life, we still want God to answer that prayer in our lives. Psalm 90, verse 12. Number five, don't think, by the way, I think there's like eight do's and only five don'ts. So I'm partial to the positive side. This is a don't. Don't think escape is necessarily an answer. Don't think that escape is necessarily an answer. When life gets hectic, when life is disappointing, when life is complicated, when there's pressure, when there's discouragement, some are tempted to think that the answer is to run away. In other words, to get out of this perplexing pressure-filled season that you're in. I mean, there are times that our, our heart maybe is saying, though our lips maybe don't say it, our hearts are saying, Lord, I don't like this. This is not what I had planned. Yes, sometimes it's wise to initiate some changes and to make, take some steps that would be wise in dealing with certain kinds of pressures and, and disappointments in life. So I'm not saying there's, there's never a time for that, but I am saying it's not always what God desires. It's not always best to keep running from your pressurized life to someplace simpler. It makes me think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where God makes that promise that he'll never allow us to be tempted. And it's the same word in the Greek, to be tried, to go through a trial. He never allows to be tempted or tried beyond what we were able. That's comforting. It's never too much. We may feel like it is, but we either are going to believe our feelings or are going to trust God. Okay, there's our choice. He says he never allows that to be more than you can bear. And that with the way, and with the temptation of the trial, and by the way, he also says it's common to other people what you're going through, so don't think you're the only one. But with it, he'll provide a way of escape, and then he defines the word escape, that you may be able to endure it. That's God's plans many times. Not running to someplace simpler, so consider the fact that he's giving you the opportunity to stay, but simplify the life you have. There's another option. And remember, God can give the grace to persevere in any circumstance in life. And I think that's really the point of uh, of application for us in Paul's discussion in Philippians chapter 4, Paul's discussion of what he had learned about situations in life and contentment. He learned that contentment is not based upon circumstances. So I'll, I'll read for you again, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have been revived. You have revived your concern for me. He's telling that to the Philippian church. You've revived your concern for me. They supported him in his ministry. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They lacked opportunity to give to his ministry, but now they had that opportunity. So he was glad for them. But then he says this, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
I know how to get along with humble means. So listen to the pendulum go back and forth. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. How do you learn that secret? Ultimately, it's what verse 13 says. You know, the verse that people take out of context all the time. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all things means the all things of that pendulum swing. The all things of life and the seasons and the difficulties of the pressures. I can be content in all these things. Not because I'm the super apostle. Through him who strengthens me. God gives the ability to endure. Yet some do have that tendency. Again, I've said, sometimes there's a place for it, but some have that tendency just to bail when things are difficult, to get out of the pressure of the suffering. But the reality is that there is, there's a person you can't run away from when you run away. And that is yourself. You, you take that person with you. You just take some wrong thinking, perhaps, and some bad habits into the next situation that has not been dealt with and resolved. The point is that contentment and simplicity, even, are based on the attitudes and the beliefs that you hold dearly. Therefore, the path to a simpler life will be found in the choices then that you make each day. And not necessarily in changing towns or jobs or churches or so on, the list can go. Sometimes, but not all the time. Perhaps you've heard of that expression about the greener grass, you know, the myth of the greener grass. Whenever I say those, old, those expressions, it's all the older people that nod their heads. But nevertheless, <laughs> the myth of the greener grass. What does that convey? Well, it conveys this idea of someone sort of, uh, this is the way I describe it, someone like standing at a fence there and looking out at the other pasture, another plot of land, and seeing how green it looks over there in comparison to the dry brown place maybe where they're standing. So they start longing for that green patch of field, thinking that if they could just move over there, then they could be happy. Well, it didn't always work out that way. As one person commented, perhaps it's greener over there just because it's on top of the septic lines. It's just something to keep in mind. Which means you'll, you'll get there to that perfect spot in life and you find out that it's not all that you thought it to be after all. You see, ultimately, the key is not the type of situation you're in. The key is the type of person that you are. So apply that to marriage. Each of you should first seek to change and grow where you are. It's another expression, right? Bloom where you're planted. Because running away is not necessarily going to be the bed of roses, another expression you thought it would be. It applies to you as a couple, if you're always just running and seeking something different and putting your hope in the next change somehow, it also applies to you as an individual in marriage. If times are difficult in your marriage, if you think that running away from the marriage is what will finally bring you personal happiness, not enough time for me to tell you the stories 
the people found that not to be true. Number six, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. Here's another expression. Now, surely we're all familiar with this one. Don't make mountains out of molehills. Thank you. All the old people that answered that. Don't make mountains out of molehills. You know, it's the idea of turning something small, leave it small, instead of making it something bigger than it is. We can violate that expression in many ways and in many situations, whether we're talking about something our spouse has said, just hypothetically, or done, or something our children have said or done, making a mountain out of a molehill, really. I mean, if we're living on edge, and by that I just mean we're living in such a way that we're not really learning that contentment, we're not content in the Lord, and we're not content in what He is sovereignly doing, then we can react to something that has happened in such a way that it makes it worse. And that ties into what I said last week, act, don't react. We compound the problem just because we're choosing to maximize the negative aspect of what is happening instead of taking note of any good in it. There's examples like that in parenting, many examples. We can make mountains out of molehills and we, we, we major on the wrong things and, and we prioritize the wrong thing. It could be the, you know, the proverbial little child that's picked some flowers for his mom out in the garden and he brings them into the house to give them to her and when he does, he tracks in mud and she gets very upset with him for tracking in that mud in the house. She missed the point. It's important to look past the negative side of that. Otherwise, in parenting, you can react in such a way that you crush a child's spirit. I mean, sometimes a child's just trying to do something that helps. But the same thing can happen in the adult world. Marriage can crush one another. Even on trite and meaningless issues. I, I literally, this was a, well, I don't know, too, too long to give you all the details. I, I have experienced this many times in counseling. Uh, of one person one spouse just getting really upset and just frustrated and constantly irritated over some small thing. Even silly things like how the spouse stores the milk in the refrigerator or something, you know. I mean, literally, things like that. And they're in counseling. Making mountains out of molehills. If you're not careful, you can maximize your spouse's mistakes you can maximize your spouse's weaknesses. And that kind of making mountains out of molehills is devastating to the marital relationship. So in the context of our two-part series, the problem is that when life is difficult for some reason, I mean, real things going on, I'm not minimizing the difficulty or the pressure. Those things are real. The storms are real. The problem is the tendency is to do this thing I'm talking about, to get upset over things that ultimately are not big issues. That tendency increases when the pressure is on in life. And all we're doing is ventilating. So make a habit 
think of it this way, in the good times, you know, make a habit of minimizing issues, not exaggerating them. Do, do that when life is going fine, and that way perhaps your, your default setting is getting trained a little differently to not always maximize the wrong and exaggerate it when the storm comes. One more related thought. Distinguish between skill and sin. That's a very important principle. Sin is more significant than a lack of skill in some area. And many times the small things in life are skill issues, like how you put the milk in the refrigerator. Or how you fold it and put the clothes in the drawer or something like that. Those are not sin issues, those, but those are the things people will get upset about and fight over and be irritated over and frustrated. So think about it that way. Doing that is a skill issue. Reacting, though, with the impatience and the caustic speech and the critical spirit, that's sin. So which spouse has committed the greater wrong, the one who folded the t-shirts wrong or the one who reacted with impatience and arrogance and criticism. One more way to say all this. Think the best about one another. Still on the same point. Think the best about one another. And think the best about each other's actions, which means sometimes what you have to learn to do, and it's not always easy. I've had to learn it many, many times. So has my wife. Learn to appreciate the motive behind what someone has done, like that little kid with the flowers, instead of just focusing on the action or the words alone. That motive's important, and the motive was they might have been trying to serve you in some way or to help. So all that was under don't sweat the small stuff. Number seven, do negotiate and compromise. Do negotiate and compromise, especially since the odds are you are each different from one another. I I can only think of one couple in my life where I honestly came to conclude after all the premarital counseling and we'd known them before that, they were older and, and, and then they were married and still married today and I concluded that they were like exactly alike. And, I, and I, I didn't understand it. I, I didn't know how to, how to meet with them, really. <laughs> they were exactly alike. And I think they still are today. So, I mean, that, that can work. But uh, in general, we're not. So we have to negotiate and compromise. Now, compromise is a bad word depending on the topic. If you're talking about the gospel, doctrine, theology, integrity, character, compromise is a bad word. But compromise is not necessarily or automatically a bad word. In marriage, in fact, it's necessary. And while negotiating, to find a reasonable way to compromise on issues, be positive, apply all the other principles, be positive, be verbally aware of how you're coming across, be gracious. Think of it this way. How would you negotiate for a compromise with your boss if you were trying to get a raise? How would you negotiate with the CEO of your corporation? 
if you happen to come into town? How would you negotiate with a world leader if you were given that opportunity? I mean, how would you even do that even with a, somebody in leadership, an elder here at the church? My guess is you would think about what you're going to say and you would try to do it respectfully. You would seek to be careful to avoid mistakes that would cause you to lose your point or to lose your case. Remember Proverbs 16, 21, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. You see, those verses on communication that I mentioned apply here to this point as well. So negotiate, seek to compromise. And that's the opposite of what some people do. It's far different than this, trying to fix your spouse. That's a different issue. That's the approach many people take. They are on a mission to fix their spouse. And how is fixing the spouse defined? Making the spouse like them. To think the way they think, act the way they act, communicate, respond, and so on, the way he or she communicates and responds, and so forth. That destroys a marital relationship. The problem is that people who are fixers, who kind of carry their toolbox with them all the time, ready to fix, are convinced that somehow total alikeness is the key to marriage. Or that perfect compatibility is the basis for an effective marriage. Now, obviously, some degree of of likeness and some degree of compatibility is, is certainly helpful. I mean, my wife and I certainly enjoy many things together, but we don't enjoy everything that's the same. But those things that we enjoy together, we we certainly are grateful for those. And no doubt, if a husband and wife have two completely worldviews, that's a a problem. And some have to, to patiently and graciously persevere through that, where one has a biblical worldview and one does not. So that, that can be a difficult issue to overcome. But you don't have to be totally alike on everything to have an effective marriage, because that's not the basis biblical basis for a relationship. I mean, think about it. The husband and wife are not supposed to be just alike. Marriage is about complementing one another. And that's true from the very creation of marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The husband and wife are not supposed to be exactly the same, carbon copies. Instead, Scripture presents it that they correspond to one another and complement one another. I'll read the familiar verse for us, Genesis 2, verse 18. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And the idea of suitable there is the idea of corresponding to. In other words, the husband and wife both bring something to the relationship table that's needed. Therefore, since you're different by God's design, there has to be allowance for your spouse to be who they are and and who God made them. So fixing is the worst thing you could do. Really, we can say this, that marriage... And I think about this many times through the years in ministry situations, that marriage and the home need to be a safe place where a person can be transparent, a person can even fail, 
And there still is that unconditional love and acceptance, at least the best definition of that unconditional love. A safe place. And that goes along with the need to be, for there to be safety in another way. If there is failure, there needs to be the freedom to discuss and share and confess without condemnation and judgment. That's a safe relationship. Therefore, how sad it is when we don't allow our differences to end up being something positive and helpful in the relationship. How sad it is when we try to change and fix our spouse. But granted, I get it, the differences can be sources of frustration. So what was the point? Learn to negotiate. Learn to compromise on those issues that can cause friction. Number eight, don't take each other for granted. Don't take each other for granted. A healthy relationship takes work to form and to maintain, and that's going to be true throughout your marriage. I mean, Pam and I still have to work on things. We've been married, I think it's 47 years. 47. No, she's shaking her head. (laughs) 46, I think. Okay. 46. I was doing the math there. This is 22. We got married in 76, so the 6 and the 2. Somehow the 7 doesn't fit in there. And we're still... We're still having to work on all these things. It just never stops. It takes a lot of effort all the time, all the years of marriage. But that's certainly true during those storms, those seasons that come. So even when times are hard, don't think that you can just coast. Don't think that you can just ignore one another. Don't think that you don't still need to win one another. Continue to do that. Continue to win one another. Continue to date. Guard those times. It doesn't have to be expensive. And in the best sense of what this could mean, seek to impress one another in the best sense of that. I think this all goes along with choosing to give your best to your spouse and not your worst. Give your best not your worst. Some do the opposite. They are patient and kind and gracious with other people, kind and gracious with people at work or their boss, or if they're in sales some way, kind and gracious to the customers, and you can't offend them, of course. So what I'm not saying is start being rude to your boss and all the other people and all the customers. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying... There's verses that would apply to that, I think. But I am saying, save your best for your spouse, not your boss, or your friends at church, or your family members, extended family members, and so forth. Give your best. Seek to make your spouse want to be with you. See, that's a very practical thing. Seek to make your spouse actually want to be with you. And I don't know what your arrangement is in your marriage and the season of life you're in and how jobs enter in and all that, but I'll just just use the, the stereotyped version of it. Wives, 
Wife, if you are at home most of the time with the kids, then cause your husband to desire to come home to you. Husband, cause your wife to want you to come home. I mean, the world we live in is very discouraging if that's all we look at. So seek to be a source of encouragement to your spouse. I mean, you can be the greatest encouragement to them to trusting the Lord and to to persevering through difficult times and to to keep your eyes on some goals and plans you've set and things like that and not to get thrown off by the waves of life. Seek to be an encouragement. And by the way, that, of course, applies to, to parenting as well. We've taught that before in the parenting material. Scripture commands that. Do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke them to anger. That means don't, don't keep harping on them to the point where they just feel like this, this atmosphere of oppression. There's no hope in it. They're discouraged. You're required to be a source of encouragement to your children in this discouraging world we're in and for the home to be a safe place for them too. Number nine, do keep choosing to trust one another. Do keep choosing to trust one another. I know I've read this before somewhere that trust is like glue in our marriages. It's it's what helps keep the relationship together when the storms and the winds winds of life come along. I mean, you know, you you want your house to stay together if it's going through a hurricane or something. You know, the winds are blowing, and the nails and the carpenter's glue and the screws and all that. You're hoping they they function. Your your trust of one another is like that. If you're going to communicate effectively and apply biblical principles of communication, that that depends on trust. If you're going to try to make good decisions together, financial decisions or anything else, that's a matter of trust. Sexual fulfillment is related to trust. In summary, trust is an important key to all aspects of marriage. Here's the problem on the topic of of trust. Too many look at trust as being a feeling, an emotion, some sort of emotional urge. Trust is not a feeling. Trust is a choice. It's a choice of the will. One author made these comments. Trust is not a haven your spouse gives you, but rather a position of courage you develop as a personal responsibility. Trust is not a condition you find yourself in as a couple. It is a characteristic you must develop within yourself first and then invest in your marriage. To put it simply, trust is like a muscle. And so muscles, you know, get stronger as you use them. So the more you exercise the muscle of trust, the better you get at trusting. But there is a balancing side to that, right? And that is each of you making yourselves trustworthy. There's a responsibility on that side. I mean, so what, what helps your spouse trust you? I'll give you a few bullet points. Here's one. Establishing a track record of being sacrificial. If you establish that track record of being sacrificial for others, but especially sacrificing for the good of your spouse and for your family, that goes a long way. Because you're living out Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Right? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. That's the essence of that sacrifice for others. Putting others above yourself. You, the more your spouse sees you over time seeking to live that out, the more he or she will find himself or herself trusting you, and that is crucial since your spouse is the most valuable person in your life. But don't just seek to be sacrificial in spurts. You know, well, the pressure's on. I think I need to be sacrificial now to help do that. But it's kind of sad if there's long stretches in between when you're seen as selfish most of the time, see. In other words, treat your spouse with as much care on regular, ordinary days like when they're sick or something like that, as you do during the storm or the time of crisis. Another way to say it, do whatever is necessary to keep from forgetting the value of your spouse. Now, husbands are commanded to give honor to their wives in 1 Peter. But the problem is when your spouse observes that you continually seek to please yourself and as a habit that your focus is on self just during the most of the times of life, then that causes concern. Because your spouse isn't convinced that you have her or his interests at heart or the family at heart. But if your spouse knows you have their interests at heart, they grow in trusting your decisions. There's no real hope in this area of trust if you believe that everything exists for your own personal fulfillment and you're just going to push and drive your own agendas. That's one way. Be a set a pattern, a habit of sacrifice. Another one is you build, you build trust. Here's another one. You build trust by being a good listener. A good listener. Now, you need to communicate. You need to discuss issues when you need to know, negotiate and compromise. And, and there are those issues you'll discuss that don't necessarily have good answers, easy answers. There's no specific resolution to the disagreement. To the disagreement or, so you're trying to negotiate and compromise. Just remember as you do all that and you're still trying to work things out, do it without unnecessary passion. You can start coming over the top with passion and it It discourages the other person to even want to talk. So listening is key. That's the key. Listen. Be known as a listener. And that means seeking to genuinely understand the other person's viewpoint. I mean, if you can consistently do that, really trying to understand your spouse's viewpoint, that builds trust, even if you don't agree. It assures other people that you care about them. You see, the answer really is not the most important thing. The, resolution, the, the relationship is. So make sure you're listening and watch your words. Maybe one more bullet point, one or two, about building trust. Be open in sharing your spiritual life with your spouse and your family. Be open in sharing what the Lord is teaching you, what you're learning spiritually, what the Lord is doing in your life. Just a word to husbands. Husbands, this may be why your wife doesn't trust you in various areas like Decision-making and finances and choices of entertainment or whatever, she may be frustrated over your lack of concern about spiritual things. And then that frustration with you can become a way of life, which is sad. And other things that wouldn't normally be a source of frustration start becoming a frustration. 
But it gives hope to your spouse to know that you are seeking to follow the Lord. It gives hope to your spouse to know that you are seeking to grow spiritually. It helps your spouse's confidence that the Lord will then keep addressing the areas in your life that need to change. She has that hope. He has that hope. So make a habit of freely communicating with each other about your spiritual life. I mean, discuss what the Lord's teaching you, what he's working on you in your life so that you can pray together on, what you've learned from the Sunday sermon or from the Sunday school class, what you're praying about for the children, what you're praying about for friends. Share all that. And in those times of communication, I'm not talking about interrogating one another as as if you're putting your spouse on trial. Don't do that. We're talking about the person that you share all life with. So just have a little courage in discussing those things. That's helpful. Obviously, that begs a question, what if there's nothing to share? It's a problem if there's nothing to say about what God is doing in your life, spiritual life. One more bullet point there on trust. Just guard and maintain your intimacy with one another, even when the storms are brewing, even when the answers to issues don't come quickly and easy. That builds intimacy because your spouse sees that you believe the intimacy is worth guarding. Number 10. There's two more. Number 10. And this, this one's very specific. So it's like pull it out, some of these principles, and apply it to one area of life. And there's a reason. Number 10 is do seek unity on financial issues. Do seek unity on financial issues. Sometimes the storm we're going through is related to finances and financial issues. And that can be a big one. Financial problems can put a lot of pressure on marriage. I've read this before. I don't know what the statistics are in the decade we're in, but in decades past, many articles along the way have said that financial issues were like the number one cause of divorces. So I don't know where it fits on the scale today that people divorce if you burn the toast, but It is a big issue, okay? It's a big issue. So especially in the stormy times of life, we must, all the time, but especially then, don't throw out biblical principles of finances. You must seek to live by the biblical principles of finances that we find in like the book of Proverbs and elsewhere in God's word. And this is not an exhaustive study of what scripture teaches about handling money and what I'm about to say But I've taught on that in the past. I do know that it's on the website somewhere. But allow me just to mention a few practical considerations that are especially important to remember when the pressure of life increases. And you've got to make some financial decisions. The first is seek to cut expenses in any way that is reasonable. You have to take an honest look at where the money is going and cut expenses. And you, and you need to have unity on that as you negotiate and compromise. And really, cutting expenses is better than a raise because you're already paying taxes on the earnings anyway that you're spending. Cut expenses. Another one. Tailor your approach to money, handling money, according to your own skills and abilities. Tailor your approach to handling money according to your own skills and ability. Here's what I mean by that. First of all, play my cards on this topic. I believe everyone should keep good financial records. Many don't. 
I believe you should be keeping good records of your income, good records of your expenses. But we may not all do that the same way, keep records the same way. Some people keep very detailed records of everything on their computer. Every expense, reconciling every statement, every credit card, the bank, everything through a software program such as Quicken. My wife, I'm not even looking back there right now because I know she's smiling at me. She knows somebody who's like that. I thrive on it. But because of the pace of life at which you live, you may need a very simple financial record-keeping system. So do that. Keep it simple if that's what helps. On the other hand, if your life and your career and your skills allow you to plan an account for, you know, for spending and purchases in a more detailed manner to keep account of all that, then you might be able to handle some complex system that I don't understand either. Whatever, I don't hesitate to tell people to keep good records. You need to know how much you're spending on things. You need to know what's happening. You need to know where the money's going. So based on your skill level and your place in life and the time that you have, do whatever you can to get a handle on what's going on and not just be living haphazardly. Here's another one. Seek to agree, certainly on any major expenditure. But really, you ought to have a plan, at least, on how you're going to go about spending on smaller things as well. Even miscellaneous things. There ought to be a plan of how you divide that up in the family or the the marriage or who's responsible for what and and what kind of things you need to talk over. What, What level is that that you need to talk over? So settle that in your marriage. In the storms of life, you're going to need to be more intent about it. Certainly share the responsibilities in whatever way is appropriate for your marriage. Pam and I have our system, what she does and what I do, and it relates to finances. But a bottom line principle, we should always seek, and this could be the most important thing because it's a bottom line financial principle, and that is we must, you must, we must, I must always seek to live within our means. And that's one reason you need to have such good records. We must spend less than what we take in. And there are people who don't know that whether they're doing that or not. But I'm saying all this, especially during the storm, because of financial problems and financial pressures and getting behind on bills. I mean, that just adds more to the anxiety and the fretting and, and all that. So I have a budget. Have some sort of plan. Just one final word to husbands, because I've seen this happen before. Husbands, let me define budget correctly. A budget is a plan you both agree on to help you know who, who has responsibilities and what and how to spend the money. A budget is not a tool you use to punish your wife. Don't ever do that, but especially during a storm. Number 11. Oh, there's 13. Yeah, number 11. Do think long-term. Do think long-term. For many issues and many situations, there are no quick fixes. It's true of financial situations. It's true of parenting issues. There just are no quick fixes. So be patient with God's process in your life 
on that pendulum swing you're going through, like Philippians 4, and be patient with God's work in your marriage. There is a reason we call spiritual growth progressive sanctification. It's progressive over the long haul of your life, so think long term. Whatever you're facing right now, I mean, you may really need to take a step back and think, okay, what's the best thing long term? Don't get caught up in the short term. Think about what you hear on airplanes. Don't stand up until the pilot has brought your plane to a complete stop and turns off the fasten seatbelt sign. Okay? Stay seated. That's thinking long term. There's a sense in thinking long term means being forward focused as well. You can't go forward and think long term if you're fixated on the past. Every person in here has a past. Every person in here has a story to tell. Every person in here has been through some kind of difficult circumstances even in the past. And the older you are, the more you can say that. But here's something true of all of us. We can't change the past. It's done. It may mean for you to be forward-focused and to think long-term. It may mean for you that your very first step needs to be forgiveness in some way in your heart towards somebody. You really need to take to heart Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. There may be somebody, maybe your spouse, maybe a family member, maybe somebody in this church, maybe somebody else from your past, a parent. You need to go before the Lord and settle that issue and ask him to help you get rid of any bitterness and anger in your heart and be forgiving because you can't go forward. You can't think long-term if you're still looking back at something. I'll never forget this. I think I've shared this with some premarital couples, but it was a question a groom asked me years ago at a wedding I did out in California. I used to pastor the singles in that, that large church, and so I was doing like a wedding a month. You think Kevin's doing a lot. I was doing a lot. And uh, that most of them were traditional, you know, which I encouraged. Uh, don't make me do anything weird in the wedding. But, uh, you know, most of the time, you know, you're, mar- you're coming in from the side, you know, like the groom, it, that door, that door, it's the, it's, the, it's the pastor and the groom, sometimes the, the, the groomsmen as well. This is one of those weddings where the groomsmen and the bridesmaid were coming down together as couples. That's, that's, that's not weird. That's okay. And uh, I, I can tell you some weird things people want to do, though. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm out there, and, and th- usually, as the pastor, I'm the one who knows what's going on. I'm a musician anyway. I'm listening through. I crack the door a little bit. I see where they lighted the candles. I see that they've seated the family. I know exactly where we are in the music. I know when to come in. I have to tell the other guys to come in because they, they don't know anything. You know, they, if you left it to them, they just would stay in there <laughs> until somebody went and knocked on the door. This, spout, this, this groom was not like that. He controlled everything in the wedding. I mean, he picked, he picked the caterer, the cake, I think everything. Probably picked the bridesmaid dresses. I mean, he, he controlled everything. He had the music down to a science. He had it down to every a certain measures where each of the couples had to be at certain rows when they were walking down, that kind of thing. He was in track of everything. So I hardly had to listen, you know. I mean, he knows when to go. I know when to go. We both know there's 30 seconds left, and we're about to go in. And he turns to me, and he says, Pastor, 
quick, what's the most important thing I need to know about marriage? <laughs> it's like, um, um, well, um, 10, 9, 8, you know, I said, forgiveness, forgiveness. And we went out there. And I remember Pam and I, I don't know if she remembers that, we talked about it when I, on the way home or something. I said, you'll never forget what he did. And uh, we talked about it and said, you know, in the short term, you know, a quick answer, that's probably as good as any. Because in marriage, you're going to have ample opportunities to apply that one over and over and over. But refusing to forgive is an, is an example of extreme pride. A related thought to that forgiveness, always give the right of revenge and consequences to God. Give up the right to being the hangman. That's Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So all that was under do think long term. Foster whatever will help you keep your eyes going ahead. Number 12, do remember priorities. Do remember priorities. I mean, the simplest sort of way of thinking of what a biblical priority system would be might, might be this linear line, you know, like God, God, number one. If you're married, your spouse is number two. You know, then your children, then others. In reality, though, I think what I'm talking about is more of a mindset than something you can, you can measure empirically, like in time. How many minutes you're spending with your wife compared to how many minutes you're spending with your children, and so forth. In other words, depending on your responsibilities, depending on your circumstances, it may well be true that something lower down, so to speak, on the priority scale may need and therefore get more attention from you at this, this time. It could be something going on at work. It could be something related to your children. Frankly, we do likely spend more time at the job if we're working full-time. We spend more hours at the job than we do you know, communicating with our spouse. That's just the nature of it. So I think in reality, instead of an up and down line that lists priorities, I'm convinced it's more of a horizontal line where all those things on the line are priorities in some way because you have biblical responsibilities in every one of those areas. And at any given time, one of those areas may rise to the surface as the one that we give some needed attention to. But nevertheless, there is this mindset that you keep that your relationship with the Lord is still the most important one. You keep that. And then when it comes to human beings, your spouse is second only to the Lord. So don't abandon that mindset during times of pressure and storms. Lastly, number 13, do trust the instruments. Do trust the instruments. I read the following account. It's a true account. It's in a book by Bill and Pam Farrell. True account of a flight in 1947, a Pan Am plane. Some of you will remember that, airlines. In 1947, a Pan Am plane took off from Cuba to Miami. Inadvertently, the plane caught up with the hurricane that they were supposed to follow and stay back from. The plane flew into the eye of the storm. The plane was tossed straight up 1,000 feet, then dropped just as far. The lightning was blinding. A ball of fire leaped across the wing. Seven of the passengers fainted from fright. 
Rain fell in sheets so hard that passengers could no longer see the engines on the, pl- on the wings. Rain began to flood into the cockpit. Hail beat down so hard that it sounded as if the wings were being ripped off. The frightened passengers had no choice but to trust the flight crew, and the flight crew had no choice but to trust their instruments. The plane circled Miami for an hour and a half looking for an opportunity to land, but the airport remained closed because of the hurricane. The crew was directed to fly north, and with the help of air traffic controllers and accurate flight instruments, they finally landed in Nassau, Bahamas. And when they touched down, the crew was given a standing ovation. I would think so. Just illustrates something for us to end with. When I say trust the instruments, our instrument is Scripture, the Word of God. In a storm, you, you must not abandon all that it says about the normal things of marriage. You must trust all that it says about what the role of husband and wife is, are, what those roles are. Those, those roles don't change. They're timeless. Trust what Scripture teaches about that topic of expectations we went through last week. What Scripture says about communication, what Scripture says about trust and trusting your spouse and leaving revenge to God and forgiveness and trying not to change and fix your spouse, but seeing them as the one God has given to you to complement you and to correspond to you and what priorities are and so on, regardless of it is, all the truths we find in Scripture ultimately are the buoys that mark the channel for us in marriage. Don't fall prey to temptation to run to other sources for answers. Psalm 1, the blessed man loves the word of God and trusts it and applies it to his life. Along with that is what Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says about prayer. That's part of the instrumentation, if you think about it, because Scripture teaches us the significance of prayer and committing our burdens and our anxieties to the Lord. In all the Scripture says about being humble. In the times of trial, just remember 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. If you're going through a trial right now, difficult time, a storm, humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Thirteen, I mean, I could have made 15, keep thinking of things, but regardless, if you're at a point where these suggestions seem difficult, they seem maybe for other people, they seem too impossible for your situation, then pray. Pray intently for your spouse, pray for your marriage, and that God would establish and reestablish trust within the marriage, but most of all, trust him that he will do that because he is trustworthy. 1 Corinthians 7, 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So when the storm is raging, ride it out. Persevere. Don't be thrown off by the hail and the lightning and the wind and the flooding. There's a sense in which you you have to grab one another and 
and hug and just say, listen, with God's help, we're going to get through this storm. With God's help, we're going to persevere and we're going to endure and we're going to do it together. Ultimately, the end to a great marriage is a right relationship with the Lord, knowing him, serving him, loving him, and living a spirit-filled life with joy. Let's pray. Father, I seek your help on behalf of all of us tonight, myself included, that you would strengthen us to be able to remember the things that are most important out of all this, to even pick one or two to start working on, to take practical steps on, just one at a time if necessary, so that we're building up that, that strength within us that you give to us, that we can ride out any storm that comes. I pray for anyone who doesn't know Christ, who's not following Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would open up their, their hearts to believe, to trust him, because without you, There is no hope in life or the future, but in you, there is great hope. In our Savior's name, amen.